This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Investigating crimes in the Ukraine, technology and the collection of evidence. Today, we're joined by Anna Vydroliak, the UNESCO Chair on International Law and Cultural Heritage and Professor of Law at UTS. And Mai Warren, a Senior Practitioner in the Management of International Criminal Trials, to talk about the challenges presented in collecting and collated evidence of breaches of international law in Ukraine. In particular, we're going to focus on how the law protects objects of special cultural significance, what accountability measures exist when those objects are damaged in armed conflict, and then talk about how technology can assist in bringing perpetrators of these crimes to account. Professor Vradoliak has authored numerous books on international law and cultural objects and cultural heritage, as well as the Oxford commentary on the 1970 UNESCO and 1995 Unidroit conventions. Among her many other appointments, she's a general editor of the Oxford commentaries on international cultural heritage law and book series entitled Cultural Heritage Law and Policy. She's president of the International Cultural Property Society and on the management committee of the International Journal of Cultural Property. Mai Warren has decades of experience as a senior executive in the office of the prosecutor of several international judicial mechanisms from Rwanda, Sierra Leone, the ICC, the War Crimes Court for Bosnia-Herzegovina and the ECC. There's barely an international criminal justice mechanism Mai hasn't been involved with. She's notionally retired, but is still consulting on legal and judicial projects, including organizational development advisor to the office of the attorney general in Somaliland, organizational transformation and change management consultant to the office of the Director of Public Prosecutions under the Joint EU and UN Office on Drugs and Crimes, Criminal Justice Sector Reform Program in East Africa, and is engaged at UTS with teaching and program management of global accountability projects, as well as providing advice to Anna in her UNESCO role. Anna and Mai, thank you to both of you for joining us today. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren, for inviting us. First up, Anna, what is cultural heritage and how is it protected during armed conflict? I hasn't to actually define cultural heritage because it's a moving feast, Lawrence. So initially it has been defined in international law broadly, but specifically in international humanitarian law in its tangible manifestations. So whether it's monuments and sites, but also cultural objects. And it's a way, and this has been effectively critiqued by scholars in other regions as something that dominates Western legal thought. But in more recent times, it has progressed to intangible aspects, so language, knowledge, and so forth, which predominate in other areas of the world. And so, as I said, this is also reflected in the way in which the codification of international humanitarian law has evolved as well. How do you protect an intangible object? You protect the people and the things associated with it. So initially, the protection of cultural heritage during armed conflict and belligerent occupation, as I said, focused on the tangible aspects. And so this started in the 19th century with the Lever Code that started during the American Civil War and the rules that were drafted then, and then evolved similarly over time to the present day. So we have the 1899 Second Hague Convention and the 1907 Fourth Hague Convention, the regulations attached to that, which again focus on the tangible aspects of protection of cultural heritage, even at that early time, including holding people that fail to adhere to those standards accountable. 
So that was an additional requirement. Then over time, there were specialist instruments that developed, particularly the 1954 Hague Convention on the Protection of Cultural Property During Armed Conflict, which was adopted under UNESCO following the Second World War and its two protocols. The first one, the 1954, which deals with movable heritage. And we can talk a bit about that as to why that was separate from the convention itself. And also mm -hmm. the 1999 Second Hague Protocol, which was adopted during the 90s in response to what was seen as limitations of the existing framework in response to the Yugoslav conflicts and other conflicts during that period. And then, and May and I will probably tag team on this, the responses to that was how to hold people that violated those standards to account and this is where international criminal law comes in and it started initial responses were after the first world war the 1919 commission and we see a whole series of um, crimes that were adopted there including crimes that subsequently did including attacking persons that were specially protected such as um, religious authorities and so forth, which then goes to that idea of intangible. And then Nuremberg and the various criminal courts, which Mai has been at the coalface. So it's very much related. And going back to your question, the protection of intangible heritage in that during the work of the UN War Crimes Commission uh, during the Second World War and in the lead up to the Nuremberg trials of how does one address what was occurring, including looking at if we're protecting monuments and sites, we also need to protect the intangible aspects attached to those, that they are part of a living culture often. And that is what is being attacked. We will elaborate upon that, no doubt, as we progress with our discussion. Fantastic. There's so much in it. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever turned my mind to think about the special protections we offer to religious personnel as reflecting protection of cultural heritage, because in my mind, it's a specific protection that you apply in armed conflict to a class of person. And that link, I don't think I've ever had the light bulb go off in my head about that specific link. But as you say, of course, it's littered throughout the IHL instruments to protect that kind of property and the people and the, the associated parts of it. So then what's your role with UNESCO in relation to being the Chair for International Law and Cultural Heritage? So, and I'm grateful actually for this podcast for raising awareness. So we're the first specialist chair. UNESCO sets up a number of chairs in different areas of their remit because they look at education, science and culture. This one is in relation to protection of cultural heritage. So what we're looking at and what we're, the remit of this chair is, and it's only one of five in the world and the only one in the Southern Hemisphere, it covers research, education and advocacy, and it's focused on promoting the rule of law in this field. And one of the limitations, and it's probably not the only limitation of international law, but we see because of what's happening in the world today, not just during armed conflict, because we're focusing on that today, but also we know that in relation to development and also tourism also has devastating impact on cultural heritage, is what are the norms and how can they be effectively implemented and upheld and holding those that violate those responsible, including states. We're focusing on individuals today, but we're obviously, states are the ones that sign up to this, these norms, IHL norms, but also other norms such as human rights norms. That's part of it. And uh, you mentioned the particular focus for the first four years is on movable heritage. So that's why we have the commentary in the 1970 and 1995 Unidua Convention. Mm -hmm. And the other themes that we're looking at, because they're was deemed a need is 
capacity building in relation to Indigenous peoples, and that's of particular importance our area of the world, but not just our area of the world, and also empowerment of women and girls in this field as well. So before we move on, Mai, to talk about how we actually look at some of the enforcement challenges associated with protecting this kind of objects, movable heritage. What exactly is movable heritage, Anna? <laughs> well, it's both collections. And I'll, I'm speaking here in, in terms of traditional ways of understanding movable heritage because mm-hmm. that's the way it's defined in the international instruments. So what we see in museum collections, some of those would have been made for standalone purposes or things that have been removed from monuments and have become movable, so to speak. Right. Yeah, so they may have been removed from an existing monument, such as a church and so forth, or removed from an archaeological site. Mm -hmm. So this takes into account a lot of different aspects, and each one of those has a different dynamic within how it is protected within international law because of the difficulties of defining who has title. Right, which I guess then fits neatly into the challenges, I think, with holding individuals to account if they have done something or taken this heritage or this movable heritage in particular I think my evidence has been collected to document the destruction to cultural objects thinking about the Ukraine conflict in particular now could you tell me a little bit about how you can document or how evidence can be collected to assist in identifying where there has been cultural heritage that has been moved or has been taken or there has been a breach of an international law obligation relating to cultural heritage Well, obviously, we need to be able to rely on assistance from the ground, from people who may be witnessing such removals, and also who are, of course, very knowledgeable about their locations and such. And then we would need a fairly reliable technology so that we are able to capture whatever information is available, either verbally or photographically or documentarily, so that it can pass the test of the chain of custody. I would, I suppose I'd like to start off by explaining how it is done at the present time mm-hmm. at international courts and tribunals. So, because then we have some model that we can pattern what we do at the Ukraine level. So after 27 years since the ICTY was established, over those many years, we have started to form a stable ecosystem and design of an international mechanism, judicial mechanism. Mm -hmm. So there are four organs, internal and external. Three are internal, the chamber, the administration center, which is the registry, the OTP, all internal independent organs. And the fourth, especially in the ICC, is the International Defense Bar. All of these four are concerned with collecting evidence that will prove or disprove or adjudicate an alleged crime. Mm -hmm. There is a Bible that everyone looks at, which is called the Rules of Evidence and Procedure. Mm -hmm. And there is usually a stable structure, human resource structure, 
in the office of the prosecutor, there is the investigations and the prosecution, all concerned with collecting, storing, and preserving evidence, not evidence, information, yeah. so that if it is selected to be potential evidence, then it's admissible according to the rules of evidence and procedure. So let's transfer that model to Ukraine. At the moment, the whole world seems to be there. Yes. And all purporting and wanting to collect quote-unquote evidence. So let me not talk about what others are doing. I can talk about what Anna and I and our colleagues there would like to do. Mm -hmm. So Anna has already explained that we are focusing on cultural damage, cultural losses. And as I said in the beginning, we can use people and technology. And so now we want to know what the rules are. Hmm. If this information goes up to a potential evidentiary level, then we ask ourselves, where will it go to? Which judicial mechanism will it go to? Will it go to the ICC, which has a stable rules of evidence and procedure? Or will it go to the Ukraine judicial mechanism? Happily, I found out that Ukraine indeed has a criminal code and a what they call the criminal procedure code, which is 281 pages. So I can tell you, I have not read that all. (laughs) But I did look at their evidentiary sections and they are quite similar to what the evidence procedures at the international court is. The other fortunate thing is that they've had this for a long time. It is obviously well-developed because it's already in version three or four. The unfortunate thing is it's not just the prosecutor's office investigators who are doing that, but all the other parties that have come in. So what we're hoping to do with the colleagues that we are working with is to try and get an agreement with them on what our own procedural body of knowledge would be. And it seems at this point that they are quite eager to do that. The people that we are working on the ground actually identifies it as one of their main objectives, is to make sure that the information they collect will stand examination, scrutiny at the international level. That leads me to another question, which is that I think that the Ukraine conflict is is fairly unique insofar as we're seeing such a huge focus on accountability during the armed conflict compared to a lot of other armed conflict where there wasn't the capacity, there wasn't the organs, there wasn't the focus to conduct this kind of evidentiary collection contemporaneously. And there wasn't the capacity of the domestic judiciary to actually hear some of these trials. So we've had the first war crimes trials against Russian prisoners of war already concluded, which is relatively rare when we're speaking about criminal justice in an armed conflict context. So you've also mentioned the challenges then about having concurrent jurisdictions between international and domestic. 
but then also focused on the potential of technology to help in translating information to evidence. So what systems can be used to do that? And how do you effectively get a whole population to act as evidence collectors? I think it's really important to contextualise the conflict. I think we need to remember, because a lot of the focus in the international community has been that it appears that it started at the beginning of this year. For Ukrainians and the people on the ground, it has clearly started in 2013-2014. And so the people that we are working with, that we've approached if they need assistance, have been gathering information for the purposes of evidence since that period, particularly around Crimea, in relation to Crimea. So I think it's really important because the sense, especially with some reporting and papers about that it is a rapid prosecution process, then sort of gives the idea that it it may be problematic and there may be issues. If if it is simply around time, I think we need to contextualise it. And this is the ICC prosecutors remit is that it goes back to the initial invasion in late 2013. And that is what is being investigated. And we know that the colleagues on the ground that we're working with, the briefs that they have already delivered to their prosecutor general and that also with a view to it being looked at by the ICC have been during that earlier period. And I should stress, and I'll let May then go into the details, is that our role, and we're very conscious that there has been a lot of actors come in, is in response to people in our networks saying how, you know, what can be done, is we asked how can we help. So it's very much this idea of capacity building, so that if there is a need and that they do find a need, if we, if we can assist, that's the idea, is to be guided by their needs. Obviously always looking at the international standards mm-hmm. that are required, but it's this idea of driven by the needs of the Ukrainians on the ground because of this idea of managing expectations. And then finally, and I'll let May speak to this, is also working with the ICC, the prosecutor's office, with Europeans at that level as well, and the Americans as well. So they are very much coordinating their approaches. But again, is that they are wanting to drive the work as well on the ground, which makes sense because that's where the evidence is and that's where the crimes are being committed. May? So we're very focused with our partners that we collaborate with. Mm-hmm. And we've already started capacity building work. And they have acknowledged or identified very much their needs. And one of them, of course, is evidence or information collection. So we're putting together a solution that will answer to the unique character of this conflict. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, we have found a solution that's been developed by the International Bar Association that allows us to have regular people on the ground Mm -hmm. who are able to witness or find information. From that point onwards, we can then prove or secure the provenance of the information that they are attempting to give to the quote-unquote real investigators. Mm -hmm. So with the use of this technology or technological solution called eyewitness, it's just your camera, really. Everyone's got a phone. Everyone's got a camera. You click it. The difference is 
as soon as you click it, you are able to then transport it, to upload it up to the cloud. Mm-hmm. Where that step of clicking and uploading is already documented and secured. And then it goes to a central, how should I say it, war room, perhaps, somewhere. And there's a, a group of people who then record the metadata. And if you look at the metadata that is available from the international tribunals, mm-hmm. it's easy to enter those data. But the data actually are in three categories. First, we have to have the provenance data. Second, we have to make sure that we are recording properly the initial analysis. If, for example, say the experts that are available to do the initial analysis can identify an element of a crime, they might want to tag that and it then moves on to the next set of experts to continue the evidence analysis, the information analysis. And the third category is what I would call the transactional data. These are records of movement of the information. As soon as the metadata is there, as soon as it's tagged physically, and as soon as it's stored in a secure location, it has to go out at certain points because of the rules of evidence. First, there's the disclosure. You need to disclose what you have to the defense. Then you have to have inspection, at least at the international level, the defense is allowed to inspect what we have as prosecutors. And then finally, we have to have some sort of a track of movement even among the teams. So at every point when it moves, we have to secure that and record that officially. So that takes care of the chain of evidence. I just want to add what my, and this is for the lawyers and the law students out there, is that they're basic principles of any legal system, of any judicial system. We all, especially those that have been involved in litigation, will appreciate what May is talking about, those basic principles to ensure the integrity of the system and the evidentiary burden of proof that the prosecution is leading, and that can be tested by the defence. I think the other aspect of it, which is really important, and apologies if I'm overlapping with something Maye said earlier, is managing expectations of people on the ground that are going through the conflict and then are invested then in any accountability efforts as well. So there has been a huge effort, and people are probably aware of that just reading newspaper reports, but certainly within Ukraine, there are dedicated websites where people are uploading information as in real time. We can't equate that with what we're talking about here. That, that it doesn't satisfy what May has spoken about. It certainly evidences potentially some of the destruction so that that can be then followed through by others to the level that May is talking about. But one of the reasons we were happy to and wanted to put our efforts in relation to this is because People get very engaged in relation to cultural destruction during armed conflict and belligerent occupation, ordinary people, because it is so visual and also people are familiar with a lot of these sites. But managing those expectations is really hard for people. Yeah, it's often cultural experts that are uploading this information or ordinary people. And to get that idea across 
of in relation to accountability efforts that standard that needs to be met which is very different that sort of education process so even for the general public is really important there, there are two other things i'd like to add to that lauren mm -hmm. if i may one is the idea the concept of duty of care so if you've encouraged a local population to document any commission of potential or suspicious activities and they get in harm's way how do we manage that and no one knows yet i can't imagine of a live collection of evidence in any other of the cases that i've been involved with the second thing is very peculiar to anna's expertise which is cultural damage because what we need to do as she had instructed me in the beginning is this is a story so this was what this monument looked like before mm. and this is what it looks like now so between the before and the after we need to trace the activity in order to prove that that's a damage that is prosecutable and second that means also that our evidence is less valid if we don't have one or the other the before and the after so uh, that's another call to people perhaps to say hey has anyone got a photo of this site when you went on your honeymoon or something like mm. that can you let us have it so from that point of view it becomes really a worldwide exercise in a way when social when communities can get involved but how do you protect them and how do you instruct them to do this properly it reminds me of a number of conflicts where the list of cultural heritage or the awareness of what should have had special protections was quite low by the people who were on the ground with a mind to protecting this stuff because the UNESCO lists aren't necessarily reflective of all of the cultural heritage in a location either. So how do you find out what should have protections if it's already been destroyed if you don't know to point people to a particular area and say, did you go to this particular grid square on your honeymoon? Can you give me a photo from that? Yeah, this is, again, the idea of managing expectations because people think that it will be all cultural sites that will then be subject to war crimes prosecutions when it's not. If you look at the more recent prosecutions, the more recent successful ones, invariably they are World Heritage sites. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that it has to be to that level, and it certainly isn't required under IHL that it be a World Heritage listed site. Yeah, because those two actual frameworks are distinct. But because in relation to war crimes, what is being protected is because of its universal importance to all of humanity, the World Heritage Listing becomes a default. So it's a lot easier for the prosecution to prove that it is of universal importance because it's being deemed such because it's been inscribed at the World Heritage List, right? Mm. But that doesn't and shouldn't preclude, and indeed the World Heritage Convention says that just because something is not on the World Heritage List, it doesn't mean that it isn't of universal importance. And so we have tentative lists under the World Heritage listings that requires that under that convention, and there may be things in Ukraine that are on the tentative list that may potentially have been targeted. There may be other forms in which you can say that it is of universal importance. It just does make it a lot harder in relation to war crimes charges. So my then another challenge, I guess, is establishing the, you've talked about the provenance of the thing that's physically been destroyed and the challenges with establishing provenance of 
that evidentiary chain and the eyewitness app sounds fantastic compared to what you would be relying on at the conclusion of a conflict where you're trying to cobble together information after the fact. But how do you build the story about the value of some of these things aside from just physical photos of how the thing has been destroyed? Well, I think that's where your witness statements will come and it will be a very challenging thing because it could be concurrent with the commission of the crime that you have to take such evidence. And that's why I think it is just so strategically vital that this coordination of the people, the international and national cohorts that are there, the coordination is vital to be undertaken. And it's a real pity that, was it two weeks ago or three weeks ago, that the president fired his prosecutor general and his main intelligence person. So it's like starting from scratch again. And now they have additional crimes that they need to look after, like the treason of those 36 people who were found out Mm -hmm. that may be responsible for that. So in answer to your question, it's storytelling. And you need really, really skilled investigators who can do this more than what they normally would do in post-conflict situations. I'm throwing out a curveball question now because it wasn't in the list, but (laughs) speaking about provenance of evidence and the use of the app, it turns my mind to the example of the Bucha massacre where there was satellite imagery that was used not in an evidentiary sense but in an information sense to demonstrate that this massacre had occurred and of course the recourse from Russia was immediately that this is a deep fake this is I don't think they called it fake news but called it a fake information how do you think that technology is going to be able to address these kinds of challenges going forward well there are established mm. um, reputable satellite imagery organizations that's been there for years. And they have been following the conflict. In fact, we get a weekly report, don't we, Mm. Anna? And so if those weekly reports come regularly, no one can say that something had been made up in order to fit what was seen post an eruption or a damage. In the end, it's credibility, isn't it? And it's a person, a judge, who has to adjudicate on that. And the weighing of that information as evidence yes. of what it's what it's going to be exactly. accepted for or otherwise. I mean, I think the obviously the majority of the conversation about deep fakes is mired in political and populist support focus, but it strikes me as something that's that's going to continue to be difficult in terms of electronic media is that provenance of what happens at the point of collection, confirming where it's gone once you've taken the photo, having those metadata tracks and streams seems pretty straightforward when you're using an app like you were describing. It's that, that point of capture where there's different context that needs to be collected to support the story you were talking about. So when people are doing this capturing of evidence, is there information available to them about what kinds of things they should collect? So 
May, you mentioned the eyewitness, which is actually really good in relation to capturing when it's real-time destruction. There are many other sources of information, including, and we know that Ukrainian authorities and people on the ground, so civil society, are using tools that have been brought together by citizen investigators, such as Bellingcat, and they have been providing training on the ground, well, virtually, obviously. And their work, we know they've done a lot of important work across the board for many, many years in relation to not just gathering open source information, but stuff on social media, but also testing the veracity of that. So what you've talked about in relation to deep fakes and also the modification of information, we know it is a deliberate tool of the conflict in relation to the spreading of disinformation. So they are very conscious of that on the ground and across the authorities that are pursuing accountability, the idea of testing veracity. And certainly, so the eyewitness is one part of it, um, the tools that are deployed by Bellingcat in relation to open source, whether it be what Mae was talking about with images that people might upload in relation to social media or Flickr and so forth that can be used testing the veracity of that and then potentially using it. But also, as May said, around satellite imaging, that has been used for a number of conflicts, including that it's been used now to document what is occurring on the ground in this conflict, including what I mentioned earlier around archaeological sites. So the unauthorised digging of archaeological sites, and we know that colleagues that have been involved in this have prepared briefs of evidence about unauthorised digging in the Crimea, and those materials then appearing in Moscow museums. Mm. and the individuals that are involved in that, including archaeologists. So there are a lot of, so it's satellite imaging, but also heat mapping and also other ways of showing visualisation of data. And that becomes important when we're talking about other potential crimes where you need to show systematic behaviour or deliberate behaviour in relation to whether it be crimes against humanity and also genocide. May, how would you normally see interaction between the management of evidence collection from domestic mm. organs and international organs? Uh, well, it centers on coordination again, isn't it? But thankfully, both the International Criminal Court and the Ukraine Criminal Code accommodates cooperation and acceptance of each other's jurisdiction as long as it is consistent with their own laws. So Article 21 of the Rome Statute is very clear on that. Mm -hmm. The judges, when they apply the law, they apply, of course, their own law. And if they can't find any satisfaction in that, they're happy to look at the national laws. That's very clear in 21. And then there is an equivalent one in the Criminal Code of Ukraine where they were very clear on that. They are ready to accept judgments from other international tribunals as long as it's consistent with their laws and with the treaties that they are party to. So in that way, it's really easier, I think, to coordinate that. So basically, we're good at the legal level. What we need really is on the coordination on the operational I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> Which is just, I mean, the answer is it's going to be incredibly challenging if we're talking yeah. about this occurring in any country, yeah. let alone one that's undergoing significant armed conflict at the same yeah. time. But I also think that's why 
Anna's project is really much more manageable because it's very focused, very narrow. And there's not a lot of people who are in droves going to do this. There's probably three or four organizations and it's very narrow. So, well, cross fingers, <laughs> it's easier to coordinate. From the international criminal law point of view, it feels like it's very narrow. The issue from my, from the cultural heritage point of view, it feels huge because it feels like it's been repeated again from the Yugoslav conflicts, which is in my memory. I'm sure there are people that are around that have had a longer memory of it. It just feels like it's the same story over and over again. And so in some ways that's why speaking to Mae is this idea of, okay, how do we, knowing that it's going to happen again, which is sad mm. that we, we need to acknowledge that. And our colleagues in Ukraine appreciated that they were going through this, but if there were lessons to be learned by bringing these tools together for a potential um, conflict later on or even a crisis situation, how do we develop a set of tools that makes it easy on the ground for it to be effectively coordinated for people on the ground in real time and over the longer term? And over the longer term, and again, about managing expectations, and it's something that we probably didn't raise is this idea about post-conflict and reparations. We know that the Ukrainians have been, they've been effective about prosecution. I think they've been even more effective and coordinating relation to making sure that reparations be got at because of the wealth that's accumulated in relation to certain people that are making a lot of money out of this conflict and other conflicts that Russia has been involved in. So you mentioned the lessons learned from previous conflicts that have developed these tools. Mike, can you talk to any of those particular lessons or Anna, do you have any particular lessons that you could refer to? I grew white hair because of this project. <laughs> In 2006, when the Security Council started to make noise about the ICTY and ICTR having to prepare to wrap up, one of the things that all the prosecutors of the two ad hoc tribunals and the Sierra Leone and the Cambodia courts and the special tribunal for Lebanon have decided to do was to harvest the lessons learned mm -hmm. for future prosecutions. And so it took us six years to document this. We interviewed about 250 investigators, prosecutors, from the highest, from the chief prosecutor to the person who turned off the light at the end of the day. And we were able to document this. We don't call them best practice. We call them lessons learned and suggested practices. Mm -hmm. So I think we managed to get 160 of these practices from the whole life cycle of a court from the time the Security Council or some other institution think of setting up a mechanism up to the time when we have to close it down and have residual mechanisms. That's fantastic, Mai. Is that a publicly available resource or is that a private it's on, report? It's on the website of the International Association of Prosecutors to Great. be downloaded. We'll but, put a link to that in the yeah, show but, notes. When Anna was saying that we have to develop a toolkit, mm. this is what I thought. We could look at that as a model. And perhaps we released it. We worked on it from 2006 to 2012. We launched it in 2012. 
And I thought it's about time. I'm having conversations with the international prosecutors now. It's about time we update it. And I thought there might be thematic additions to it. Mm -hmm. So this is what you do when you're concerned with environmental uh, law or with cultural heritage mm -hmm. and all that. And we follow basically the format that we did for it. With all of that in mind, did either of you have any general observations or comments about what is a really interesting but very huge and complicated area of accountability, particularly focused on this Ukrainian conflict and cultural heritage? The most pressing is the documentation, which is what we've been discussing today, because it's entry level, right? If you can't prove it, there's no case if you can't bring the evidence. So we can point to, as May said, the rules, and thankfully they now because international criminal law since the 1990s, there has been consistent development around that, around the rules, and also in relation to cultural heritage, and we'll provide you with the link to the ICC OTP's current policy on cultural heritage. So it's quite explicitly set out in a lot of detail. We're thankful to the most recent former prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, in relation to that because she was very committed. And we haven't had time to speak about the two cases that she brought in relation to Timbuktu and Mali, which brought cultural heritage into the purview of the court and that they deliberately looked at attacks on cultural heritage. It is documentations and documentation is important because people on the ground are invested in it. So it's in some ways also a way of promoting broader awareness of international criminal law and holding people to account. And it's also important for rule of law to ensure that no one is above the law. Mai, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, from a procedural point of view, from a project management point of view, I was just thinking just then as Anna was talking that everything has its upsides and downsides. Mm. Like there's so much richness in every sense, financially, political support, government, policy and all that. But if it's not coordinated, mm. it throws out a lot of mess instead. Mm. And the prosecution of this, I don't believe I will see a prosecution in my lifetime on this. And if we don't coordinate ourselves now, that length of time will even be longer. Mm -hmm. And then you will have dissatisfaction in some of the tribunals, like in ICTY, ICTR, in Cambodia, when those who we manage to arrest remembering that the International Criminal Court doesn't have an enforcement mechanism, those that we managed to arrest died. Mm. And those, the victims and the survivors were left hanging and felt that there was such dissatisfaction. Can I tell you a story? Yes, about please. I was asked by the Khmer Rouge Court to come and help them prepare for their first public hearing. Mm -hmm. So I trained the chambers and the prosecution. And on the day that the public hearings first day was on, I was up at six in the morning to see if there was anyone who would come to court. Because the court is quite far from the city of Phnom Penh. It's a big travel. Mm -hmm. And so I went and there was already a huge queue of people, teachers, bankers, tuk-tuk drivers from all walks of life. 
It snaked along the ground. It was a former military compound. It snaked along the ground up to the street. So I was talking to them and I asked them, why are you here? And basically there was a common answer. We never thought that the day would come. Basically, that's what they said. We never thought justice would come. And mm. here it is. So that's the opposite of what I said about the defendants dying and leaving some dissatisfaction. But at the same time, the wondrous return of hope and thankfulness that justice did come. And I hope this happens with Ukraine too. Well, thank you for giving us that amazing experience to end on because I think it's a great reflection of one of the many reasons that it's important to focus on accountability in armed conflict, not just from an IHL perspective, but more broadly, and think about the people who are affected by conflict and in a broader sense, the common the common, uh, common heritage of mankind. Do we say humanity or mankind? No, I think of humanity. We do. We've changed <laughs> cultural heritage of humanity. You know, the common heritage of humanity is why we have a stake in these particular kinds of prosecutions. So I think that's a really great reflection, I think, to end on. But adding to that, if someone was interested in this particular area, in addition to the great resources you've spoke about already and also the Mali and the Timbuktu prosecutions, was there anything else you think would be useful for our listeners to look to get smart or to engage with this particular subject area? I think if you're interested in like a blow-by-blow analysis of what's happening, I always go to the International Journal of International Law blog. And because you get a very rich collection of um, opinions and very learned opinions on both sides of the discussion. So this morning I was reading about the mechanism, whether there will be an international mechanism for the crimes of aggression. Mm -hmm. And the pros and cons were very interesting to read. We're hoping to speak to Carrie McDougall about that exact topic shortly. <laughs> so I'll send you that interview. <laughs> there you go. And Anna, did you have any recommendations? Well, Mayi, <laughs> the world would be so much a better place, Mayi, if we were all populated with you. She's just endlessly curious, but also committed to making it a better place. I wish we were all like Mayi. I'm in constant awe, Mayi. I would recommend, in relation to cultural heritage, the one I mentioned was the ICCOTP, the resource that Mayi mentioned. And there has been quite a few also discussions including mm-hmm. webinars in relation to accountability in Ukraine so that they're actually working it out in real time what May was talking about in relation to the crime of aggression has also been spoken about in relation to other modalities of accountability for other crimes in relation to Ukraine so it's actually happening in real time because they're working it out and trying to build international support for what they're doing and the international community is trying to build international support because that crime of aggression is also contested as we know it's only recently relatively recently been adopted and also that the ICC is still indicating its role in this as well so each one of those is giving us an opportunity in real time through various resources to better understand what's going on. 
Well, fantastic. Thank you both for giving up your very precious time to talk to us today. A very rich and deeply experienced panel, I might call it, prosecution and the evidentiary perspectives and having that grounded in the work that you're contemplating in Ukraine, incredibly important. And we're really thankful for your time and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.